Henry himself, and he's also a lecturer at the American University of Dubai. Quite a remarkable personality given this history, and we're very fortunate and pleased to have in our midst today this very man sitting on my left, our Sheikh Abu Amina Bilal Phillips. He's the author of many books on Islam. In fact, today he's one of the most prolific writers of the English language uh, on Islamic books. Many of his books are available outside in the hall for sale. During the breaks, when the, uh, when the books are available for sale, I would encourage you to go around, look at some of these books, and perhaps some of these will catch your interest. He has authored, for example, The Evolution of Fiqh, which uh, previously was published under a different title, uh, The Evolution of the Madhat, a, a book explaining what are the four schools of thought, do we have to follow them, should we, should we not, to what degree, and so on. He has authored a number of other interesting books, a lot of books dealing with uh, my own subject area, dealing with the Dawah to non-Muslims, for example, a book which I benefited uh, from tremendously, a book entitled Salvation Through Repentance, another little book like What is the True Religion of God, and so on and so forth. He's done a tafsir of Surah Al-Hujarat, which many of you will find to be a very interesting study on that surah. So without uh, further delay, I'd like to now call upon our Sheikh to speak to us on the obligation of Dawah. Where does it say that we have to do Dawah? Who told us to do Dawah? Should we, should we not do Dawah? Do we have to do it or is it just optional if we want to do it? What exactly is this Dawah and what is the obligation? Where does that obligation come from? Where is it stated? Our Sheikh is going to tell us that. إن الحمد لله نحمد ونستعين ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله Verily all praise is due to Allah and as such we should praise him and seek his help and seek his forgiveness and seek refuge in him from the evil which is within ourselves and the evil which results from our deeds. For whomsoever Allah has guided, none can misguide, and whomsoever Allah has allowed to go astray, none can guide. And I bear witness that there is no God worthy of worship but Allah, and that Muhammad wasallam is the last messenger of Allah. As Brother introduced, the topic is fundamentally the obligation of da'wah. And we'll be looking at it from two aspects. First and foremost, the general obligation. We derive from the Quran and the Sunnah the principle that da'wah is obligatory on each and every Muslim. It is a part and parcel of the commanding the good and Amr bil Ma'roof wa Nahi an al-Munkar and prohibiting the evil about which Allah has described the Ummah described it as being of its distinguishing characteristics we have from the Quran a direct uh, command in which Allah says that is call to the way of your Lord with wisdom as understood from the Quran and with good speech. This is found in Surah Nahl verse 125. And though this is a general command, and some may conclude from it that this is for the specialists, 
uh, the people who are specially trained. Prophet Muhammad وسلم, uh, also made a statement which is authentically uh, reported. Convey from me whatever you have learned, even though it be only a verse from the Quran. This is what brings it right down to the individual level. That whatever knowledge we have, we have an obligation to share it. We have also other uh, descriptions wherein Prophet Muhammad for example, said, The best of you is he who learns the Quran and teaches it to others. He didn't stop at saying the best of you is he who learns the Quran. But teaching it to others is an integral part of that learning for it to be blessed by Allah the, the obligation of sharing that knowledge passing on that knowledge has to also be there and this is absolutely necessary because of the fact that Allah through his Prophet وسلم, has made the seeking of knowledge compulsory as you all know seeking knowledge is compulsory for every Muslim were it not also compulsory for those who had knowledge to pass that knowledge on then that command would not have made sense because it would have been putting a burden on the on Muslims which they could not fulfill. So the two have to work together. And this is why when Prophet Muhammad described this world as being cursed, he said, Adunya Mal'una. The whole of this world is cursed. Mal'unun Masiha. Everything inside of it is cursed. إِلَّا ذِكْرُ اللَّهِ Except the remembrance of Allah وَمَا وَلَا And what encourages you and helps you to remember Allah وَعَالِمًا وَمُتَعَلِّمًا And the, the, the scholar, the one who is knowledgeable and the student That relationship, the scholar and the student The teacher and the student Passing on the knowledge, gaining the knowledge you know, this, is the, this is showing the um, significance of seeking knowledge and passing it on in Islam And this is of course directly related to the da'wah because what are the knowledge when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through his prophet وسلم, had made seeking knowledge compulsory for us what are the knowledge than the knowledge of Allah and what Allah requires of us in our daily life you know is, is more important this knowledge should be given priority over all other knowledge so it is compulsory for us to gain this knowledge and it is compulsory for us also to pass on this knowledge for those who don't know. But in order to further stress the critical nature of passing on the knowledge, because though we may be encouraged and told, uh, people may still have reluctance, etc., Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, on the other side, has put a curse on those people who don't pass on the knowledge. I mean, to show, to stress to us how serious this obligation of passing on knowledge is, He cursed those who do not pass on the knowledge, those who hide the knowledge. In Surah Al-Baqarah verse 140, we find Allah saying, or sorry, in, in uh, verse 159, it's also in verse 40, I should say that verse. Who is worse? Who is worse in the sense of being more oppressive than the one who hides a witness? which is with him from Allah. The witness is his Islam, recognizing that commitment to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, and the knowledge that comes along with it. Allah says, there is none worse, none more oppressive than such an individual. 
Furthermore, the actual curse is mentioned in verse 159 of the same surah, Surah Al-Baqarah, in which Allah says there, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ يَكْتُمُونَ مَا أَنزَلْنَا مِنَ الْبَيِّنَاتِ وَالْهُدَىٰ مِنْ بَعْدِ مَا بَيَّنَّاهُ لِلنَّاسِ فِي الْكِتَابِ أُولَٰئِكَ يَلْعَنُهُمُ اللَّهُ وَيَلْعَنُهُمُ اللَّاعِنُونَ Verily those who hide what we have revealed of the clear messages and the guidance after it has been made clear to the people in the scripture such are cursed by Allah and cursed by all who would curse. For Allah to put the curse on someone for not passing on that knowledge is indicating that it must be obligatory. Furthermore, we have Prophet Muhammad saying in a narration found in the authentic uh, Jami al-Saghir <coughs> reported by Abu Dawood and Nasai ibn Majah من كتم علما ألزمه الله بلجام من النار Whoever hides knowledge will be branded by Allah with a branding iron from the hellfire. We know as a general principle in Islam if the hellfire is associated with any action it means this action must be haram. So we have both sides of the picture. One, it is haram for us to hide the knowledge and the other, that it is obligatory for us to pass all that knowledge. Now the hiding may be, of course some people may say, um, I'm not preventing people from getting the knowledge. Because of course if somebody came to you and said to you, what is Islam? If you refuse to tell them for one reason or another, then this is obviously and directly hiding that knowledge. But the other way is for you to passively hide that knowledge. Where you go to work, you know, uh, five days a week, 65 days of the year, you have a person sitting next to you in your work, you have to deal with this person every day, and you never say a word about this person. Your neighbor, who has lived beside you for 10, 15, 20, 25 years, you say hi to him when you're going out, you know, when you come in contact with him, but you don't give him anything beyond that. This is passively hiding that knowledge. And on the Day of Judgment, such individuals, those who worked with you, those who studied with you in school, those who are your neighbors, etc., if they end up going to hell, they will be blaming us. They will be pointing the finger at us, saying that such and such lived next to us all those years, never said a word to us. Went to school with us all those years, never said a word to us. Worked with us all those years and never said a word to us. So, that obligation is something that we should not take lightly. We should feel bad whenever we are with non-Muslims and we don't share that knowledge, of course. The reality is that certain circumstances may not be conducive. It is for us to try to find those circumstances. We should feel an urgency, a need within ourselves to share it. Try to find some route to get that information across to them. And in terms of the, the da'wah, of course, some of us may say, well, you know, they are, they are Christians or they're atheists or whatever, you know, and um, maybe my language, I can't really explain too well to them, you know, I'm a new person in this country, whatever, you know, I don't speak English too well, or I'm not that educated. So the point is that we have to give them whatever we have. Whatever little you can say, you say. You find pamphlets which are being printed at the different dawah centers, etc. to get that passage on. 
you know, safe, booklet. Whatever means that you have at your disposal, you should try to convey it. But of course, the most effective, one of the most effective means is by living Islam yourself. By being an example. By being distinguishable in the society. Meaning that if one lives here and one has accepted all of the outer trappings of the society where one becomes indistinguishable from the non-Muslims, then it's very difficult to give da'wah. If you're doing the same as they're doing, you're living just like, you're just like one of them. Really, what's, what's the difference? You know, as Prophet ﷺ said, Whoever imitates the way of a people becomes like them, he's of them. So, Prophet ﷺ, in so many different uh, circumstances, stressed that we should, in our outward dress, for example, distinguish ourselves from the disbelievers. It was the custom of Arabians, people of Arabia who wear a turban. Everybody wore it. The Kafirs, the disbelievers, and the believers. So Prophet ﷺ said, wear caps on your turban to distinguish yourself from the pagans. Similarly, we have principles of Islamic dress which we should conform to in order that we become distinguishable in the society. And this distinction oftentimes serves as a means of introducing Islam to the, to the non-Muslims. They will ask, why are you wearing this? Why do you look like this? Why, you know, and it becomes a means to introduce the subject to them. But of course, the outer aspect, as it is important, the inner aspect is even more important. That we, as individuals, exemplify Islamic character. Because Prophet Muhammad summarized the essence of the deen in terms of Islamic character. When he said, He has summarized the essence of the deen in good character. Verily, I was only sent to complete for you the highest of character traits. Morality. Morality as described and identified by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran and by his Prophet through the Sunnah. So the character of the believer becomes a means of da'wah in and of itself. And we know much of Islam was spread to the greater part of the world through the character of Muslims who went to these different countries as traders, etc., etc. In the initial stages as Islam left Arabia, there was direct military struggle, confrontation with the leading uh, empires of the day, Byzantium, Persia, you know, India. So there was direct struggle because these, the doors for conveying Islam into these areas were closed. The people were oppressed and the rulers did not want the message to get to these people because it's where Islam represented freedom and the toppling of these uh, empires. So, direct struggle was the only means by which to open the door for da'wah to continue. And where that becomes necessary, then jihad is applied. But where the doors are open, people were able to go and just trade as traders, then it wasn't necessary. So Muslims went out into, into to Asia, into many parts of Africa, just as traders, carrying their goods, selling their goods, etc. But 
the impression which they left on the people to whom they sold their goods was such that it caused those people to want to know what it is that made these people this way. Because you know, Prophet Muhammad you know, in Medina had addressed the, the traders there and said that traders are criminals. A tujar, tujar. Traders are criminals. Why? Because this is the nature. The nature of people when you're selling products to want to deceive people. You make your product out to be what it isn't. You know, you blow it up because you're trying to sell, you want to get this across. If there are defects in it, you try to hide it. And this is the nature of trade, right? Whereas Islam is opposed to this. All of the principles of trade forbid deception. So if you have goods and they're, they're damaged, it's your duty to tell your customer there is damage in it. You know, it's not so good. You know, perhaps you can get a better product elsewhere. You know. I'm selling it cheap. Why? Because it's damaged. Not because I, you know, I, have, I got a special deal. No, it's damaged. That's why I'm selling it cheap. Okay? So by having this kind of approach where the traders dealt with these people in a way they had not come in contact with traders dealing that way, this left an impression on them. Left an impression on them. So it's very important for us, as we said, we utilize all of the different channels of da'wah whether it be the media, media means to literature, uh, tapes, etc. But most important, that our character reflects that message. Now, in the approach to Dawa, of course, people may come with many different questions from many different directions. They may want to know why Muslim women are covered. Why is there polygamy? Usually these are the type of topics that they want to talk about. You know, why do you guys have to have four wives? You know? So oftentimes this is where you have to, this is the starting point that you have to go from. But you should not forget that the goal is to bring them to Tawheed. So the essence of the message is Tawheed. As we know from Muhammad when he sent Mu'adh ibn Jabal to Yemen, he told him that you're coming to a people from the people of the book. So, let the first thing that you tell them is to make Allah one in faith and in practice. So this is what we have to bring them to. Whether we explain about, that they want to know about uh, polygamy, then we have to give them some. We can't just say, well, no, no, we don't want to talk about this, we only want to talk about this. No, we have to address the topics which they bring. But, we try to turn that topic and use it as a means of getting them to Tawheed because this is the essence of the message. When dealing with Christians, of course, many of us may not be uh, versed in the uh, text in the Bible, etc., so we'd be able to show them in their own text that, look, you know, even Jesus, according to your own Gospels, or points he was pointing towards you know, one God, he was worshipping God, and so on, so on. So we may not have the knowledge to, to get that across to them, uh, to be able to quote for them these verses, etc. But we can still appeal to their basic uh, sense. The basic sense of who is God and who is man. That we can approach them from the point of view that 
would they accept somebody that was going to become God? And they will say no. There's no way that I can become God. Most. If somebody says yes, one day I'm going to become God, you tell them, nice meeting you. You know, keep on going. This is a person who has reached a sense of self-delusion that you really can't communicate with this person anymore. You know, because Dawah, you're, you're dealing with people who have some sense, you know. Allah tells us in the Quran, ignorant people, people are so mind blown off in their own, you know, delusions, self-delusions, try to talk to you, let me just tell them salams, you know, so nice meeting you, you know, see you later. But for those who have some level of intelligence and reason, ready to reason, then you can show them that uh, they recognize that they cannot become God, you ask them why, because our man, you know, human being, man, you cannot become God. So then you say, well, was Jesus a man? Well, you say, yes, he was a man, but so then what are you saying? If you said you cannot become God because you are a man, and you just said Jesus is a man, and it's saying this can't become God, he couldn't be God. You know, for the general person, oftentimes they never even think this, right? It's there in their mind, but they never put the pieces together. The Trinity thing is always confusing them anyway, right? So just break it down to a very simple level. Try to put it to them. You know what? So you try to, you can give some simple reasonings without necessarily having to have memorized huge portions of the Bible and quote this and that to them, right? Because sometimes, actually, this approach sometimes has its own dangers because it ends up being your interpretation and their interpretation. You know, they start to argue, you bring this verse, they bring another verse, and you know, sometimes it can get very, very complicated, depending on who you run into. This is just an average Joe Christian who just hardly read the Bible, you know, only thing he knows is, you know, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. It's the only verse he knows from the whole Bible. Okay, <laughs> you can shake him up with some of the other things. But some of these people who have read, you know, and they know their Bible well, you start bringing these verses, they start bringing counter-verses, you know, and, you know, as well, in the end, it ends up being your interpretation and my interpretation. So, one of the, what I found from my own experience, one of the, the easier ways to try to go to them is to say, let's reason. Let's use our reason. You know, God gave us a re reason for a purpose. I mean, this is part of what distinguishes us from the rest of the animals. The ability to reason, to understand things, to come to conclusions. Right? So, I mean, part of that reasoning is like what I mentioned here. Of course, they may come back to you with the point, well, don't you believe that God can do anything? And this is a common response, right? Don't you believe that? And of course, it does say in the Quran, in Allah, ala kulli shayin khadir. Verily, Allah is able to do all things. It's true. However, you clarify to them that when you say, when God states that He can do all things, you're talking about all things that are consistent with Him being God. Not including in it the absurdities the impossibilities, the things which will make God no longer God. Because if you can just reason back with them, you believe that one of the characteristics of God is that He doesn't die. He isn't born. Okay, this is part of the characteristics of God. So if somebody was to say to you, can God be born? Well, He just said, one of the characteristics of God is that He is not born. So. Though you're saying, yeah, he can do all things, you cannot include him being born in it. Because it means there was a time when he didn't exist. And if there was a time when he didn't exist, for him to come into existence, it means somebody had to make him exist. So there is somebody else who is really the God, not him. This is where you end up. So, the point is that you can show them from what they themselves believe. Take them from what is known to them to what 
is confused in their mind. That in the same way you are saying that God cannot be born, we are also saying that the Creator cannot become His creation. Because creation means what is in need of a Creator. To be a creature of God, to be a creature, means that there has to be someone to create you. So if God became His creation, then it means that He is now in need of a Creator. So this is an impossibility, an absurdity. And this falls in line with the general uh, philosophical argument that the atheist philosophers used to like to throw on Christian philosophers. They would say to them, okay, you believe God is able to do all things? Do you believe God can make a stone which is too heavy for him to lift? You know, this is what they would throw on them. Okay. And of course, it creates problems for them. Because they said he can do anything, including this, being a, having a son, being a man. So, they're going to also have to accept that he can make a stone which is too heavy for him to lift. Meaning that there is something greater than God. You see, it took that because, they, because they've accepted absurdity. Because they've accepted the absurdity that God could become his creation, God could have a son, then they're now obliged to accept the other absurdity that God can make a stone which is too heavy for him today. That God could become a mosquito and you could catch him like that. Ridiculousness. You can just show them how ridiculous that type of thinking is. Just reasoning. Put down your book, put down my book, and let's just sit and reason a little bit. You know, God gave us that intelligence. And you see, you will be calling on the natural understanding that they have. You know, as Allah said, when He created Adam, He took from Adam all of His descendants. And He asked them in that state, before they ever came on the earth, Am I not your Lord? And they called, said, Halu bala shaydna. We bear witness. Without a doubt. So, they have a, an instinctual understanding of God. Which if you can take, put aside the confusions that are there and just bring them back to that, that natural understanding, then these things will make sense to them. And they will end up telling you, well, you know, I always thought it was strange anyway, you know how Jesus could have been God, Son of God. <laughs> it did seem to you know, I never really understood it. I'll tell you, really. I had doubts about it. Really. But of course in the church you don't express these doubts. If you express these doubts then you are an apostate. So, Tudawah, obligatory, at the same time we try to focus on the core issue which is the oneness of Allah. The oneness and uniqueness in His oneness. Because it's very important for us not to stop at oneness because, you know, sometimes if we say, well, you know, we focus just on the oneness of Allah, of course, in the end the Christians will say, we believe in one God too. He's only three in one, but He's still one. And if you go to the Hindus, they also believe that there is one Brahma over all, from which everything was created and He pervades everything. And you go to all of the various religions, they do ultimately have a belief in one God. So when we are talking about one, from the Islamic perspective, we have to stress to them the uniqueness of his one. So when they come back to us with the egg theory, to explain how it is that God is three in one, you know, like an egg, having a shell, the yolk, and the white, right, it's one egg, 
He said, no, no, no. You see, you're talking about an egg. We're talking about God here, right? You know, you're making God like an egg. Right? It's not unique anymore. Or they have the tree theory, right? Where a tree has branches, it has a trunk, and it has roots. Again, all makes up the tree. You say, you're talking about a tree here. You're not talking about God. You know? Or they have the steam theory. You know, water exists as ice. It exists as a liquid. It exists as steam. Again, you're talking about water. You're not talking about God. Now, God is unique in His oneness. This is the point that we stress to them. Unique. His attributes are not shared in their infiniteness. They're not shared by human beings. Now, this is what we try to bring them to. Now, the other aspect of the obligation of Dao which I'd like to, to, to present, and um, I think this side of it is very, very important for us in North American context because what we're addressing here is <clears throat> the situation that most people find themselves in in this country, in that they have migrated here from <clears throat> other parts of the world, the vast majority or a large portion of the Muslim community represents those who have migrated here and the other portion those who have accepted Islam here. Now we have a particular verse in Surah and Nisa, verse 97. This is one that we should also reflect on when we're looking at the issues and the responsibilities of Dawah. Wherein Allah says, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ تَوَفَّاهُمُ الْمَلَائِكَةُ ظَالِمِي أَنفُسِهِمْ قَالُوا فِيمَا كُنْتُمْ قَالُوا كُنَّا مُسْتَضْحَفِينَ فِي الْأَرْضِ قَالُوا أَلَمْ تَكُنْ أَرْضُ اللَّهِ وَاسِعَةً فَتُهَاجِرُوا فِيهَا فَأُولَئِكَ مَأْوَاهُمْ جَهَنَّمُ وَسَاءَتْ مَصِيرًا When the angels take the souls of those who die in sin against themselves, they say, in what plight were you? They reply, we were weak and oppressed in the earth. They say, was Allah's earth not spacious enough for you to emigrate to make Hijra? Those will find their abode in hell. What an evil refuge. This verse is again another severe warning to Muslims in this context. Muslims living in a minority situation where the majority population is a non-Muslim population. The laws of that society oblige Muslims to give up certain aspects of Islam, not to implement Islam completely. So when a person gives up an aspect of Islam, he abandons some aspect of Islam. This Allah refers to as self-oppression, ghalimi and putin, oppressing themselves. Why? Because when we disobey Allah, we are not hurting Allah. We are not harming Allah. We are harming ourselves. We are harming ultimately ourselves. We are the ones who will suffer the consequences. So Allah refers to it as being in a state of self-oppression. Such people, when the angels take their souls and death, the angels will ask them, what was your situation? Why you were like this? And they will say that we were weak and helpless. And the angels will reply to them, wasn't Allah's earth spacious that you could make it true? And Allah goes on to say that those people who die in that state, meaning that they were able to make hijrah, 
but died in that state of self-oppression that their abode will be held. And it's on the basis of this verse and other verses and hadith of the Prophet that the scholars of the past unanimously held that hijrah was wajib, compulsory. From the land of disbelief to the land of belief. And that's to make hijrah, to leave the land of Muslims and to go to the land of the disbelievers was also haram for the disbelievers. That was their ruling in the past. Of course, there is hadith wherein Prophet had said, as narrated by Ibn Abbas, found in Abu Dawood, Sunnah Abu Dawood, which is authentic. Yawmul Fatshi Fatshu Mecca. La hijrata wa lakin jihadun waniya. That the day of conquest, of the conquest about which Allah speaks in the Quran, was the conquest of Mecca. And there is no hijrah after that. The only thing remaining was jihad and niyyah. Having the intention to make jihad or actually being involved in jihad. However, as the scholars explained, this negation of hijrah was the negation of the obligation of Hijra to Medina. Not the negation of Hijra totally, but the negation of Hijra to Medina. Medina was a point of Hijra which was compulsory for Muslims. And when Prophet established himself there, it became compulsory for Muslims to make Hijra to Medina. Until the conquest of Mecca. Once Mecca was conquered, then it wasn't necessary anymore for Muslims to leave those areas of that were controlled by the disbelievers and go to Medina to translate, to establish it, to get the message out. Because we have other statements, for example, that one we were narrated by Muawiyah, in which he said, authentically narrated, that Hijra will not cease until Toba or repentance ceases. And Toba will not cease until the sun rises in the west. So it means that Hijra remains on us until the sun rises in the west. So, in understanding that, with relationship to the situation of Muslims, for example, here in North America, we have to point out that for a Muslim, to be satisfied with this life, living an American-Canadian life, nice house, nice car, money in your pocket, you know, just comfortable. To live that life, wherein, at the same time, your children are going outside of Islam, the influence of the society is throughout your home, throughout uh, your workplace, etc. You have abandoned so many aspects of Islam. That state of affairs is a cursed state of affairs, a forbidden state of affairs by Muslims. And one who dies in that state 
Allah has promised him or her hell. This is Allah's promise. And this is what we need to convey to the mass of the Muslims here, to wake them up to this reality that they are on the edge of the hellfire. Except if one is involved in establishing Islam and conveying it to others. So this is where the da'wah comes in again as another critical point. That if we are involved in establishing Islam here, in other words, we serving as a means of and conveying Islam, we are involved in da'wah. If we are involved in da'wah here, then that justifies our being here. Because somebody has to take the message to these people. Muslims have this responsibility to carry the message of Islam to the people. So if everybody made hijrah out of the country and left no one behind, then of course then the message would be lost. So it is necessary for people to be here to, to carry on that message. So the da'wah becomes again an obligation on Muslims to justify their presence here. To justify their presence here in this land. Establishment of Islam and conveyance of Islam to those around us. Establishment of Islam of course involves establishment of schools and the different institutions that are necessary for the Muslim community to survive. And ultimately, in my view, it also involves acts of internal hijrah. Acts of internal hijrah. Where Muslims, whether it's in Canada or in the United States, in one province or one state, choose a particular area which has the greatest potential for growth and congregate there, migrate to that area, to establish a community, a real community, not a community which only meets and sees its members on Friday, so after Juma, we run into each other, Salaam Alaikum, Alaikum Salaam, and then we leave and go back to individual lives as portrayed by a program which used to be in America in the past called Little House on the Prairie. That was a classical example of the style of life of these people. Every person an island in and unto himself. That lifestyle is hated. Islam teaches that Allah's support is there with the jama'ah, with the community. Islam invites us to congregational prayers 25, 27 times praying by yourself. Salatul Janaza cannot be performed by yourself. Need a community. Eid, prayers, the zakah, distribution, needs organization, gathering, distributing. All of the Islamic principles have built in them community. That people should be working as a community. The, the pressures that people are faced with now in terms of dealing with riba interest for purchasing homes or purchasing cars or whatever. This is a product of not being a community, not having other members of the community combining finance to make possible uh, different uh, social, economic activities which are necessary for Muslims. These are all symptoms of a bigger problem which is that of lack of community. So 
it is very important for us to address these issues with regards to the da'wah, the obligation of da'wah on each and every individual, the obligation of da'wah on the community, to address them from the point of view of justifying our presence here in this land. Having a responsibility before Allah on the Day of Judgment, not to hide whatever knowledge has been revealed to us. That each and every one of us feels an internal drive, an internal force which makes us want, strive to convey the word of Islam, word of Allah to those around us in this society. Inshallah, this basically summarizes the essence of the presentation on the obligation of da'wah. You know, this is really introducing the topic. You have looked at the characteristics of the da'i. Uh, this is further introducing the topic. And in the future lectures, we'll be going into, you know, more detailed aspects of the da'wah itself. Inshallah. At this point, I'd like to invite your questions, brothers and sisters. We're going to take questions both in written form and in oral form. I will give preference to the written questions. In other words, if somebody is taking the pains to write, then I will make sure we can get them read as far as time permits. So we'll read out the questions and our Sheikh Bilal will answer them. Let your questions reflect the fact that you have listened to the lecture. In other words, let your questions be on the topic. Let your questions show that you've been thinking about the issues raised and you want more clarification. Let us get your questions now from both the brothers and the sisters. Yes. Who can ask the first question here? No, it can be written or it can be oral. Yes. I'll just repeat each question so the sisters know what answers we're what we're answering. Otherwise it'll sound to them like one hand clapping. They don't hear the both the question and the answer. Alright, so brother has asked here. Uh, some people say that when we go to give dawah to the Christians, we should not refer at all to their books. We shouldn't quote anything out of the Bible, for example. So what is the clarification on this point? Should we, should we not, how to give the dawah to the Christians? The basis of this is the narration in which Prophet found Omar ibn al-Khattab reading a portion of the Torah, or what was purported to be the Torah. And the Prophet was upset with him and told him that if Prophet Musa was here, he would follow me. So on the basis of that, it was the, some scholars or some individuals uh, concluded that we should not use their books or texts from their books in presenting Islam to them. However, we have to look at the context in which Prophet said that. He said that to Omar ibn al-Khattab, indicating to him that if Musa was here, he would follow me. Meaning what? That whatever is contained in those papers that you are reading, it doesn't contain any guidance beyond what I have already given you. 
do not go to these books to seek guidance. There is no knowledge and guidance in there for you. Because if Musa was here, who received the, ori the origin, the original scripture, he would follow me. Right? I have the final message. So, when we look in, for example, in the, in the Quran, we see Allah referring to the fact that in the books of the people and the Jews, there is, as Prophet Muhammad is mentioned. So Allah is referring to their books, referring to places in their books where it is mentioned. So, it is quite reasonable for us to try to find, since Allah said it is in their books, to try and find those places where there is indication of Muhammad and point it out to these people. Because they are today unaware that there is mention of the Prophet Muhammad in their books. And that doesn't contradict the principle which Prophet Muhammad brought out in chastising Omar for reading the Torah. Because that was in reference to seeking knowledge, trying to gain knowledge and to apply it. You had certain groups that have, that have appeared amongst Muslims in North America here, a group like the uh, Ansar, like Ansarullah, who were around for a while, you know, during the 80s and late 90s, you know, where they were taking texts out of the Bible and interpreting it and implementing it and applying it for them. In other words, they were going to the Bible for knowledge. Of course, they were deviant. They deviated and they deviated themselves right out of Islam. But that is the, is the bottom line. We cannot go to those books for guidance. Why? Because the books have become corrupted. And whatever is in there which is guidance for us is already established in the Quran and the Sunnah. So we don't need to go to these books for guidance. It would be a mistake because we will likely pull out of them misguidance as opposed to guidance. So we may only use it to, to control so, so we can show them a look. Even Prophet Jesus, Prophet Moses, Prophet Abraham prayed in the same way. Here it is mentioned in your book. So using the book to confirm what is in the Quran for them, there is no harm. This is not an innovation in the sense that earlier scholars did it. If you read the, the, the book of uh, Ibn Taymiyyah, Al-Jawab al-Sahih, Fi man baddala fi deen al-Masih, or li man baddala fi deen al-Masih, this book, the major work written by Ibn Taymiyyah, he draws uh, sections from the Gospels, etc. And a number of earlier scholars have done the same. So this principle, the principle of utilizing their books as a secondary source to support Quranic uh, teachings, Quranic injunctions or laws, for example. You know, like today in the society, people are, you know, accepting homosexuality. It has become sort of like a norm now. People are not wanting to question it. You know, we, we have a clear stand. Islam has a clear stance against homosexuality. We can show them, look, it's even in your book. It's also in your book that these people are cursed. Adultery. You know, the idea, you know, that you execute the adulterer. And I think this is uh, barbaric. You know, these Arabs, you know, crazy, just killing people over adultery. And adultery has become commonplace today. You know, it's no longer considered a crime in, in most circles. So, when we take the stance, we can point to them and say, look, in your own book here, Deuteronomy or in Leviticus, whatever, there it is, saying that you should stone the adulterer. This is part of your own teaching. This is the teachings that Jesus followed, the Prophet Moses followed, so on, so on. So we're not introducing something new. 
When we say that the women should cover themselves up, we can, you know, say, oh, you're covering the women, the oppression of the women, so and so. We can go back and say, look, you know, there it is mentioned here that the women should cover their heads, if they come out with their heads uncovered, it's this, that, and the other. It's only supporting and supportive evidence to the positions that we have taken. And of course, some of them, when you use evidence from their book, then they come back to you and say, well, why you want to accept this one and not accept the other? Right? You want to take part of the book and not the whole book, you know? Right? Because we have other things in here too which you're saying you don't accept. Right? You point out to them that we recognize that something of divine revelation remains in the scripture. Not that these scriptures are themselves divine revelation. No. There is a much that human beings have, have put in there, changed and distorted according to your own scholars. Allah says in the Quran that they have changed the book with their own hands. يحرفون الكلمة من مواضعه Allah says they will change words from places to change the meaning etc. They will do it with their own hands. And your own scholars, you can bring evidence, your own scholars say you have done it. So therefore, it is no, these scriptures are no longer reliable sources, primary sources. But what is true in them, they have been confirmed by the Quran and the Sunnah. You know, this is what we can utilize to clarify for them. So, just in summary, we're saying that it is permissible to use uh, evidences from their texts, from their history, uh, to support Islamic principles, but not as a primary source, meaning that your da'wah is coming straight to them from their book. Your da'wah should be coming from the Qur'an, from the Sunnah, and their book is supportive. Using, again, the wisdom, the logic, which were taught in the Qur'an itself. We have a number of questions uh, on the topic of Hijra itself, and uh, I'd ask you to be brief as I ask you these questions, because we do have a, a number of questions on the same topic, and you did uh, cover the topic extensively in the speech itself. And then we have a number, number of other uh, subject areas subject area touched by uh, various questions. So, the first question concerning Hijra, if a person becomes a Muslim from a non-Muslim country, should that person make Hijra to a, to a Muslim country, or can that person stay with the Islamic community in the non-Islamic country? In other words, let's simplify it to say somebody in Canada embracing Islam. Does that Canadian new Muslim have to migrate to a Muslim country, or should that new Canadian Muslim stay among the Muslims in Canada? When we take the issue of Hijra down to an individual level, people have to look into their own lives and see. If they find that they can hardly practice Islam, there's so many things preventing them from practicing Islam. The so-called community that they accepted Islam within is not really a community. As I said, it's only a Friday community. The reality is that the rest of the, the, the week, it's not a community. People are scattered living their own individual lives. So they find themselves there. There's not this support systems and are not there for them. And they have the means to leave and go to a land where there are Muslims, where they'll be able to practice Islam better. And of course we know there is no Islamic country, meaning that they are applying Islamic laws across the board in the world today. And there are no Islamic countries putting their arms out opening open and saying, come Muslims, come and 
be with us. Okay, so we know this is a reality, right? This is a reality. Let's not delude ourselves into thinking there is any Islamic uh, country out there and Khalifa and all these other things. No, this is reality. But there are countries where the majority of people are Muslims to different degrees. They are applying Islamic law in those societies. It may vary from country to country. So for us to choose one which is the best that we can find and to emigrate there and stay as long as Allah permits us to stay there, then this is better than remaining in that non-Islamic society where one feels oneself being sucked in by the society, one feels one's faith being lost, etc., etc. But if that person who accepts Islam in that fragmented community finds himself or herself a part of an effort to establish Islam and to give the da'wah that is perfectly legitimate for them to stay. If they don't have the means, because how many people have the means to pack up and just say ma'asalam to Canada or America and just head off to the Middle East, you know, or some other part of the world where Muslims are majority. And many people don't have that means, don't have the ability. So those people, obviously the obligation is it's not on them until they have the means. And it is for them then to try to find other people who are conscious and try to work with those people to try to establish some form of community, establish Islamic schools, establish the da'wah. You know, this is what their responsibility would be. Bilal is inviting you, if you have uh, some kind of follow-up question on, on the one which he's just addressing, uh, we can we can take, uh, we can take, you see that's just going to occupy us and we won't get past you. And we have a number of questions here in nature. I think some of them will be follow-up. Bear with me. I, I think it'll be good. Uh, now, some of the questions on Hitra I'm going to leave aside for the moment because many of them will ask the Sheikh to repeat what he's already said in the lecture. So I'm going to leave those aside for the moment, but I have two here which are all very similar. As a single woman without a mahram to travel with, how can she make Hijra to a Muslim abode? And uh, similar, similarly, can a single sister make Hijra in order to save her deen without a, muhram, without a mahram? If her mahrams do not want her to make Hijra, and her mahrams do not have a valid reason for her to stay here. Uh, as, we, as I said, the, the Hijra issue is one of obligation, especially where one's deen is being threatened. And a Muslim woman, if she's single, for example, she accepts Islam and she's on her own, right? She is in a situation where whether she stays where she is or she goes someplace else, she's still going to end up in the same position of being a single Muslim woman without a mahram. She doesn't have one, whether she's here or she travels. So, the point is that what is best for her? To stay in a situation where the danger of the society is so great that it's destroying her, her religion, the religion of her children, for example, she comes in with children, or for her to go to a society where at least she can practice Islam, there are Muslims there, her children can go to Muslim school, they interact with other Muslim schools also. Obviously, the second choice is a better choice. It's a better situation for her to be in. Because there is no community here to protect her anyway. If there was an established community, a practicing, established, real community, where there is a leader of that community who becomes her wali, 
who become the guardian for her without the guardian, then we will say, no, don't travel. But if there's no such community, if it's fragmented, there's no leadership, no nothing, and there's nobody to protect her here anyway, whether she stays here or she travels, it's the same. Legally speaking, it's the same. So, she then has to look. If her travel is going to take her into a position where she can better practice Islam, then it's better for her to travel, if she has the need. Though we have the general rule about a woman traveling without a mahram, that stands in the circumstance where community exists, where Muslim communities exist. When you're in a situation which is, which is uh, as this, where it is fragmented, where people are on their own, then to talk about the issues of traveling without a mahram is out of context. Similarly, if, for example, uh, a young uh, sister, her parents, she has realized what the deen is and requirements of the deen, etc., etc. And her parents are out of it. They're not practicing Islam. They're happy to live here and, you know, this is what they want. And she fears for her deen here, for her to travel without their permission, without a mahram, to save her deen becomes legitimate. But if the parents are practicing, etc., and they are providing protection for her, etc., etc., then she should not travel without the accompaniment of the mahram. Well, I will try as far as possible to give more preference to the questions which are more directly related to the subject area that we already covered. And I've seen a couple of here are on the borderline because it touches upon, you know, the curse being or not and living here in a non-Muslim land and our children going astray and so on. The first of the two questions is this. If one's children are non-Muslims and they are doing things that warrant a curse upon them, is the curse also upon the parents or parents? And uh, the second question is, if your children are all married and they live an un-Islamic life, would the parents still be responsible for them on the Day of Judgment? Would Allah punish the parents for what the children are doing? When Prophet Muhammad was going to make Hajj, he came across a woman, this is by Bukhari, and she held up a child and said to him, Is there Hajj for this child, young child? Prophet said, Yes but the reward is for you. If a Muslim raises a child Islamically, takes the child for Hajj, teaches the child how to pray, you know, all the different practices of Islam, the parent gets the reward because the child is, hasn't reached puberty, it's not reached the age of maturity that responsibility for actions are now on them. Similarly, if a child is born in a non-Islamic circumstance and the child is raised as a non-Muslim, as a disbeliever, the Catholic, the child does not carry the sin of having been raised that way. This is a lost destiny that the family they were raised in, as long as they haven't matured. There is no sin on them, but the sin is on the parent. The sin will be on the parent who raised those, that child as a disbeliever. So this is the basic principle here. If those parents raise their children as believers to the best of their ability, 
they were not able to make hijra to find other circumstances to provide for them they did what they could here and then the children went astray after they became mature etc then their deviation will not fall back on the parents but if the parents had the opportunity to make hijra and they didn't and they chose to stay here in un-Islamic circumstances where they could see their children being corrupted etc but because of the dunya because of the money they were making, the comfortable life they were living, they chose to stay, then yes, they will carry a portion of the sin of the deviation of their children. So does that apply also to the married children? Once children are married, does that obligation still continue? Well, in terms of the married children, once, they, once the children reach puberty, you know, because in this society here, <coughs> if a child reaches the age of 16, etc., and he or she says, I want to do my own thing, you know, that's it. You have no control over them anymore. So whether they're from that age onwards, even if they get married or whatever, you know, you don't have control over them anymore. So <coughs> that child, if they are deviant, as a result, of the foundation of deviation which you gave them, then you carry some of the sin also. Because it follows the principle from the Prophet said, whoever starts a good sunnah, man sunnah sunnatan hasana, whoever sets a good way, he will get the reward of everyone who follows that way until the last day without decreasing their reward. But if he begins an evil way, he raises children in an un-Islamic way. He allowed the corruption in his home and etc. etc. You know, then he will carry the sins of everyone who follows that way. Not only the married, but the children of the married and their children until Yom because he is the one who put them on that path. So he will carry the sin of everyone who follows that path until the last day. So, contrary to the Christians, who we, we don't bear for who came before us, but we bear for those who come after us and follow us. All right. Um, should the, the dawah should the, should dawah be confined to non-Muslims? In other words, do we have to give dawah to non-Muslims only? If not, then what form of dawah must be addressed to the Muslims? And then a related question, actually two related questions. Is there the same obligation to give dawah to members of the nation of Islam, uh, of Sufi sect, or any other deviant sect or persons whose aqidah is not straight? What is the best way since they um, believe that they are Muslims also? So we're looking at the question of whether we have to give dawah to only non-Muslims or also to Muslims. And what about, you know, the various groups who name themselves as Muslims, like nation of Islam, uh, various Sufi sects, uh, and other persons who may not have the right belief but uh, consider himself uh, or herself a Muslim. What is the best way to give dawah to these people and do we have to give them dawah? Traditionally, the term dawah refers to inviting people to Islam. And this generally is understood as inviting non-Muslims to Islam. When we invite a Muslim to practice Islam correctly, this is called nasiha. This is giving them good advice. We can also call it dawah in a general sense that it involves inviting people, but it's really not inviting them to Islam, but inviting them to 
practice Islam correctly. So it becomes really more nasiha, advice to them, to correct the misconceptions or the malpractices that they have. And that is also a part of the deen, amongst the requirements. You know, when the Prophet ﷺ said that deen and nasiha, as religion is good advice, and they asked to whom, O Messenger of Allah, he said, to the leaders of the Muslims and to the general Muslims, you know, etc., etc. But he stresses the Aimatil Mujimin or Muslimin Wa'amatihim, to the leaders as well as to the common people. So this is part of that nasiha, fulfilling that obligation of advising our Muslim brothers and sisters. <clears throat> now, in terms of how does one advise, of course, it has to be in a way which people can hear. We cannot approach them attacking their beliefs directly. This is when you're dealing on a one-on-one -on -one basis. On a one-on-one -on -one basis. You're dealing with a follower of the nation of Islam. There's no point in calling that person a kafir and so on. No, they are. They consider themselves to be Muslims, but in the general ruling with regards to the nation of Islam, they are disbelievers. You know, with no ifs, ands, and buts about it. If anybody has any doubts here that the, that the nation of Islam are disbelievers, then, you know, that point can be clarified in more detail for them. But the reality is that they are disbelievers in the fullest sense of the word. They believe that Allah came in the person of a man they call Farad Muhammad, who taught Elijah Muhammad and appointed him as a prophet of Allah. I mean, all of that is more than enough statements of disbelief. So, dealing with somebody like this, one needs to use language which will not uh, antagonize them or, or run them away in the first few moments. You know, we have to try to reason with them, so we try to try and find a common ground with them and discuss and from that try to get to the bigger issues. Especially what Islam is teaching with regards to Allah and to human beings and the prophethood and the finality, etc. And that obligation to, to call them, same as the obligation to call Christians and Jews and the others, is similar. For our Muslim brothers, uh, who are, have not deviated to the point where they have left Islam, but are having some concepts or some practices which are incorrect, again, we have a responsibility to try to reach out to them and to help them to have a proper understanding. To cut them off, to negate them, to brand them, and just have nothing to do with them, this is error. I know it has become very popular in these times, you know, where the principle of hajr, of abandoning or, or avoiding uh, those who innovate, you know, has, has become uh, a practice among Muslims which has split up the ranks of those people who are themselves, you know, falling to the Quran and Sunnah as, as it was understood by the early generation of Muslims. We find that breaking their ranks. Yes, there are narrations of scholars like Abdullah ibn Mas'ud and others of that generation who, if they saw an innovator coming on one side of the road, they would go walk on the other side of the road. 
They would have nothing to do with them. They went in the place that came to them and started trying to talk to them. They put their fingers in their ears and walk away. Sahaba from the early scholars did this. Now, brothers will hold this up and say, okay, there it is. These people who we know are innovators, they have these innovative ideas, this is how we should deal with them. Have nothing to do, don't sit next to them, get out of their sight, don't. But you have to look at the context in which the Sahaba applied this. What is the context? This was the time of the Islamic State. Islam was fully established. The Muslims were the majority. There were few innovators popping up amongst them. So when these innovators popped up with the ideas, they cut them off. They didn't allow that idea to spread. And they executed them in the end. You know, those went to just persisted. Then the state would execute them. In our times, where we're, we are living in a minority situation, where the vast majority of the Muslims are involved in some deviation or innovation, you know, for you now to say, I'll have nothing to do with this person, what effect is this going to have? Is this going to isolate his or her ideas or such? No. All it is, is going to block an avenue for Dawah and Nasiha. That's all it's doing. So it is not serving the purpose that it served in the, amongst the early generation. Our time is different. The scholars will tell you to apply the Sharia in the sense of the hudud. A Muslim amongst us commits adultery to take that person out and to kill them. This is wrong. In these times, in our circumstance, it is not applicable. Because we don't have authority. And the repercussions of such actions on the community would be so great that it, it, is, it could create greater harm than the benefit that we're trying to achieve. And basic principle in, in Islamic law that if, if in trying to achieve a benefit you create a greater harm, drop it. That benefit is not worth achieving. If in trying to create, to, 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 uh, to attain a benefit, which is an Islamic benefit, you are going to produce a greater harm, the scholars hold that you should leave that benefit. So, similarly, the issue of Hajr is not applicable today. When we're giving da'wah amongst the Muslims, etc., we have to keep doors open. How can we reach people if we have closed the doors? We label them as isi and as that-y. You know, you're a so-and-so and a so-and-so. The name has been put on you, means I don't want to hear anything from you, you know. And of course, they don't want to hear anything from us. And a big divide is there. How to reach these people. How to bring them to a consciousness. How to correct the mistakes of their belief. And if we are to apply this principle that you have a mistake in your belief and we're going to reject what you have to say, then we'll have to do that to much of the great scholars of the past because you're not going to find a scholar of the past who didn't make mistakes. You're not going to find one who didn't make mistakes. Abu Hanifa held the view that it was permissible for you to drink uh, drinks which were, were intoxicating in large amounts as long as you don't drink it to the point of intoxication. based on the information that was available to him. His students, Abu Yusuf and Muhammad Shaybani, rejected that view. When they came across the hadith of what intoxication in large amounts is forbidden in small amounts, then they abandoned that view. But Abu Hanifa had the view. If anybody stood up now amongst us and tried to propagate that, what are we going to say about this guy? He's deviant. He's destroying the deen. 
but we accept it from Abu Hanifa because no one is free from error. Even the Sahaba themselves. When Imam Malik was asked, if we follow a Sahabi in everything he does, will we be on the correct path? He said no. He said no, unless he was correct, because the truth is one. So if we cannot follow blindly a Sahabi, then how are we going to uh, justify uh, cutting off people because of some mistakes they have made, either in their beliefs or in their practices, etc. So this is just from the hikmah and the wisdom of Da'wah and Masihah, that we keep doors open for communication. We don't cut people off, avoid labeling, to the point where we can no longer communicate with people. We only have about um, less than uh, five minutes left for our question period, and we do have a number of questions to fill up. Uh, if you can be very brief with, with these ones that will follow now, and this relates to now what you just answered. Are we allowed to go with Jamaat al-Tabliq for Dawah, and are they people of Bidah? Jamaat Tabliq is a Jamaat which fundamentally was formed in India with the goal of bringing people back to the market. The people who founded it uh, maybe had certain errors in some aspects of their knowledge. So these errors are reflected in their dawah. But the intention, the general thrust is to promote Islam, to promote Islam among Muslims. Our intention should be, if we see errors in their way, and there are some errors, to invite them to what is correct. I don't have a problem, personally, I don't have a problem with going with some of the people of Jamaat Tabliq and in the course of going with them, advising them. Not just going and sitting and not saying anything, but going and advising them. If a person came into Islam initially, and this is what was available, for them to go with them and get the basic practices of Islam in terms of how to sleep, how to eat, and how to do the basic things, and treating people in such a, such a way, and you know, there is no harm in that. As long as they keep an open mind, this is the key, that they keep an open mind. So, there is good in the Jamaah, but at the same time, there is harm. If a person is ignorant, then it is necessary for them, if there are other opportunities for knowledge, to continue to seek knowledge and to improve and to grow. If that is all that is available to them, I would never tell them, stay at home. If in your area the only people who are doing anything Islamically are the Jamaat Tablis, I would say, take from them what is good, but remember you have a foundation of Quran and Sunnah. You should try to get evidence for whatever is being given to you. Our duty is to advise them in their error, to work with them whether it's good, and what you will find is that the Jamaah is going to vary from place to place. In some areas, depending on the background that they come, they may have 
greater errors than others. If you go, I know, we say we have a book, Tablet Nisab, you know, Shazayl Amal, these books, right? Uh, there are many weak hadiths in there, publications in there, right? But also in many other books that are available on the market, collections and so on, so there are weak hadiths. There are some publications, you can find this in Sunan Ibn Majah. If we are going to reject a book because there are publications and weak hadiths in it, then we'll have to throw aside Sunan Ibn Majah. Sunan Nasai. Because this book has publications and weak hadiths. The point is that we try to get as much clarification as possible, get to what is correct, and take out the good and leave the bad. Similarly, with the Jamaat in their books, etc., uh, there is a lot of good, a lot of good information there, but of course there are some deviations, certain things are questionable, and these things should be questioned. In some areas, for example, in, in, the, in the Middle East, in, uh, in the Emirates, in Saudi Arabia, they don't read these books. What they read there is Riyadh Salihin, that is the standard book in which they read. You know, which still does have some weak hadith in it, but very few fabricated hadith. That is the common book which is used. And their attitude with regard to certain issues of aqidah, you know, may be much more firm and in keeping with the general uh, way which was understood by the early generation of scholars. So we can say that they tend to be more uh, correct in that sense, whereas in other areas and other, uh, you may find people are more affected by the backgrounds that they're coming out of. So, in summary, I would say that the, there is error in the minhaj of the Jamaat Tabliq, but not such error as takes them out of the deen, you know, that it is not possible for us to work with them. We should keep the doors open to work with them in what is good. We should give them nasiha and advice where they have committed errors. Our brothers and sisters, we only have a few minutes now before the Adhan will be called and then the Islam will be 10 minutes later after the Adhan. So that just gives us enough time now to get prepared. I'd like to thank you all for your patient listening. I'd like to thank Sheikh for his indulgence and for giving us uh, his time and sharing with us his knowledge. We do have a number of very interesting questions here, the answers to, to which we would have learned tremendously from, but uh, we don't have sufficient time. I'd ask you, if you didn't hear your question answered in this session, to repeat your question in another session. I hope that one of the other speakers will be able to address your question for you. Jazakallah khairan wa akhra da'wan alhamdulillah wa 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 alhamdulillah